0: Back to Portfolio Rescue, our show where we take questions straight from you, the viewer. Remember, if you have a question for us, ask the Compound Show at gmail.com. Last week we had Barry Ritholtz on the show, the namesake of our firm, and Barry had a lot of interesting things to say about uh, writing and producing content and blogging, and he's been doing this for a couple decades now. And I mentioned with Barry that I answer questions. When I started my blog, my whole reason for doing it was answering questions for friends and family because I was sick of them asking me because I was the, the finance investment guy. And I typically get two questions from like my high school friends especially, high school and college friends, on text messages. One is like, should I buy or sell this stock? Like, what should I do with this here? Is this a good buy? Is this a good sell? Uh, and two, is this going to get worse? So I, I hear from people way more and things are getting worse. And things right now are getting worse. So I have a question. I think our first one we're going to do today is actually from someone who texted me this week, one of my friends, and uh, so we're going to use that, but what do, we, what do we got here, Duncan?
1: All right, cool. So uh, uh, before we get started, I just want to say for those who haven't watched, you have to watch the latest Animal Spirits. It's episode 247. Um, there's a clip in there of Ben uh, scoring a touchdown at, uh, what, what was the the stadium?
0: Uh, the Silverdome in Detroit, Michigan, which is not there anymore I think it's been torn down but that was the the old stadium before they had it so I, I my glory days I played there a couple times for the state championship
1: that was like 98 99 right? yeah, yeah okay so everyone needs to watch that but first I had a football question for you which is I've always wondered when you I see you evading tackles in that you know that long run uh, would you rather see someone coming to tackle you or not know that they're coming
0: I'll definitely see them. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, the reason I sure. ask is because
1: of the car crash thing. People say like, oh, if you tense up, that's when it like hurts the most and you get injured the most. So I didn't know if it's like preferable to just be tackled and not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Being Prepare. Hit, I think know.
0: preparing for one. It's kind of like not unlike the stock market, right? You'd rather be prepared for a downturn <laughs> than get hit from the side, right?
1: Okay. Cool. Cool. I ran cross country, so you know we don't tackle, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So first up today, we have uh, a, a short and sweet one. Inflation was already out of control. Now the war has made gas prices spike. How does this not end in recession?
0: Yeah, I think this is a question a lot of people are asking these days. And unfortunately, like the odds of a recession are much higher now than they were, call it two, two and a half weeks ago. I think you'd have to be pretty dense to not at least think that. It's obviously impossible to predict these things with 100% certainty. But I would almost be surprised if we didn't have some sort of minor economic contraction because of this, and it's not just the U.S., right? This thing will probably be global, and I'm guessing the U.S. will probably fare the best out of most developed nations. So John, throw up this chart of electricity and natural gas. This is from Michael at J.P. Morgan, and he compares electricity prices and natural gas prices between some countries in Europe and then the U.S. And you can see the spike in Europe is just massive. And they're far more dependent on Russia for some of their commodities, and their prices there were much higher to begin with. It's funny. We're complaining about $4 gas here in the US, but in Europe, people have been paying well over that price for a long time now. They already have a lot more, and they, they do it in liters, so um, I can't do the actual conversion in my head, but let's just say it's higher. Um, it is important to note that, like inflation doesn't always cause a recession, but every inflationary spike in history has only been alleviated by a recession, right? So what it, what, what happens to get that inflation back down? Unfortunately, every time, It's a recession. So let's look at this next chart, John, of inflationary spikes. So I looked at every inflationary spike of 5% or more going back to 1940. And you can see the gray bars on this chart show when a recession happened. The little red circles I did there was every time inflation spiked above 5%. It's not a perfect relationship in the sense that you can gauge the timing on these things. Sometimes inflation fell, then we went into a recession. Sometimes a recession occurred during that spike in inflation. Uh, and then sometimes that inflationary spike probably didn't have anything to do with it, like, say, the 2008 crisis. That's the last time we had oil this high. Uh, that, that was probably going to happen anyway. But the only way inflation came down in any of these instances was because a recession came afterwards or a recession happened because of this. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is kind of where we're at. So if we pull up this next table, John, uh, this just shows that the pre-inflation or the pre-recession inflationary spike. Again, go back to the 40s, and then what happened afterwards. We just had our inflation print this morning of 7.9%. That happened before all this stuff with Ukraine and Russia happened, before energy prices, prices spiked, before agric- agricultural commodities prices spiked. Uh, again, it's hard to see getting out of this situation where we could, in the coming months, in, the, in this year especially, probably see 8, 9. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw 10% inflation print this year which is really gonna freak people out, I think. And so, unfortunately, like, I think that a recession is really on the table and it's, it's probably much higher than 50-50 odds of happening right now. Again, I'd be surprised if it didn't happen. Now, what does this mean for the stock market? I mean, we could actually bottom before it happens because it seems like the scenario where we kind of can see it coming now, it kind of not quite the same parallel as what we saw in the corona crash where everyone knew the day it happened. Like, Tom Hanks got COVID, NBA shut down, we're going into recession the next day. Uh, and so the stock market, it's kind of who knows how hairy and volatile it gets. I guess a lot of it depends on how long the world lasts and, and how long this commodity spike lasts. Now, of course, recessions are not great because people lose their jobs. One of the interesting factors going on right now is there are 11.3 million job openings in the US. That's the highest number ever. The highest, number this, ever, the highest this number ever was pre-pandemic was 7.5 million. So there's more jobs than ever. So you think a recession happens, people lose their jobs, and obviously this, this kind of stat can, can change overnight if, if there's a slowdown. But consumers have repaired their balance sheets for years. We've paid down credit card debt, increased savings rates, home equities through the roof for people who own a home. So if we do have a slowdown, I would expect it to be minor, depending on how all this shakes out. But uh, I, I think the odds of a recession are so much higher now than they were even a month ago, and uh, it's probably going to happen, with the caveat that I cannot predict the future.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how fast things shifted, you know. I mean, it's yeah. just it was like the, the war on top of everything that was already going on, it just accelerated. It's it, like it's, unimaginable it's kind of a, from a year ago.
0: The butterfly flapping its wings. I mean, this is kind of one man decided to do this and the whole world has, has essentially changed. And yeah, I think we could see a slowdown. Again, I, I think it probably worse in Europe, unfortunately, and it will be here. Uh so yeah. Kind of a downer, but I think a recession is probably coming at some point.
1: Yeah, it seems like that's what people are expecting too, right? Based on the moves that that we're seeing.
0: All right, let's do the next one.
1: OK, so up next uh, we have, I feel like the wealthiest 10% of investors have taken profits during this year's massive sell-off. Where is this money going? Bonds, cash, or just back into Apple, Microsoft, and Google?
0: So the the reasonable assumption here is that it must be the wealthy selling stocks because the top 10% owns something like 90% of stocks. right? So it has to be the wealthy. Uh, I'm not so sure of this. It's also kind of hard to, to gauge these questions because it hurts your brain to think about it, like, what happens to the money in a sell-off? Is it just because people are selling? And if you think about it, for every buyer, there is a seller, and for every seller, there has to be a buyer. So there, there can be new shares issued. If a company goes public, if there's a SPAC, uh, you know, so you have an IPO, you have companies issue stock options. But money essentially disappears during a sell-off, right? Just like it kind of magically appears during uh, a bull market, so I'll put this chart from the about the tech wreck from the FT on here. So they said f- this is from the FT this morning. Actually, they said five trillion dollars of market capitalization been shaved off the Nasdaq, and this is pretty much in the past year or so. If we look at two examples, uh, the next chart of PayPal and, and Facebook. I refuse to call it Meta still. Uh, and Duncan, I'm angry because if I go on Y charts and I type in Facebook, it doesn't come up anymore. I have to type in Meta, and I refuse <laughs> you have to, call to acknowledge it. Meta. it. <laughs> yes, I have to acknowledge it. So. So Facebook went from a high of $1.1 trillion to a little over $500 billion now. So that's, you know, half a trillion dollars gone. PayPal is even crazier, I think, from a relative perspective. $362 billion at the top. And again, th- these numbers are from like last February. It's not that long ago. To a little over $100 billion now. Just that it's gone. And, and so that money is just, it's it's essentially evaporated, which is kind of what happened. So it doesn't take that much selling. All it, all it is is sort of a supply-demand thing where, People were willing to pay up, and you'd have a gap up in prices, and now the gap is going down, and so that, that money's just going away. So we look at, like, the the flows. Surprisingly, in January, it was still ha- it was still pretty strong. So this is from Ed Yardeni. This is the equity mutual funds and ETF flows. It was still pretty positive. It'll be interesting to see if this, this this trails off a little in February, and especially in March. And then we look at the bond flows. Bonds are actually coming down a little bit in January, but the, the money's still pouring in. Now, of course, you have all these different competing... Investors, you have index funds and actively managed funds, and institutions, and corporate executives, and individual shareholders, and hedge funds. So you have all these millions of investors who have different opinions, and time horizons, and goals, and risk profiles, and reasons for selling. Uh, so it's always kind of hard to know like who's doing the selling and why, and, and what the reason is, and who's who's freaking out. I, I, want, I do want to get back to the ten percent comment because it's it seems to make sense again the ten percent sell. But William Bernstein had this piece at the beginning of the pandemic and. He used this quote from JP Morgan that said, in bear markets, stocks return to their rightful owners. And a lot of people have taken that quote from way back in the early 1900s to be like, okay, in bear markets, the people who are patient and disciplined and willing to put money in, those are the ones who are going to make out okay. But Bernstein said, yeah, that's great, but guess who has the money in a downturn? Rich people. And so bear markets actually make wealth inequality worse because rich people have the financial means to buy financial assets when they're at depressed prices. And so a lot of people were shaking their fists at the sky and saying, "Oh, the rich people are getting richer during the pandemic." That's probably going to happen in every bear market in the future as wealth inequality continues to have a separate, you know, between the haves and the have-nots. So, uh unfortunately, like downturns level the playing field for a little bit in the short run as those holders of financial assets see their prices fall, but they're also buying when they're falling. And so over the long run, that's a positive for rich people and unfortunately, it probably makes wealth inequality even worse. I know this is, we're, we're kind of on a downer here, Duncan, for the first yeah, two yeah, uh, recessions. Feeling, I'm just uh, a little now. Yeah. But, uh, but I think that's how it, it probably plays out. You, it'd be nice to think like all oh, the wealthy people are selling and they're panicking, but that's, that's probably not the case because they have the financial means to actually hold on.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, they don't have to. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So. Okay,
1: let's see, if, let's see if we can get cheered up with the, the next question. Um, let's do it. <laughs> okay, do you think it's a good idea to use an S block for a down payment on your house if you don't want to sell any stock? Can you first explain what an S-block right. is for new yes. bills like me?
0: Yes. Yeah, I just have to do the uh, acronyms for you. We're going to have to do like a, a sheet of all the acronyms for right. Duncan. So S-block is securities-based line of credit. So that's like borrowing against your portfolio, taking a, you can take, use that as collateral, borrow against it, earn, pay a low level of interest, and then use that money for something else. So this is, this is really more of a financial planning question than it is an investment question, I think. So let's bring a certified financial planner on here from our firm, Kevin Young, who's in the office with Duncan. He's in an undisclosed location because they can't be <laughs> next to each other. Uh, so, Kevin, when thinking through something like this, and this is a question we've been getting a lot, actually, like, can I? I don't want to take taxes into account and have to sell right. something and pay taxes on it. But I, w- I have this big outlay coming up. When you when you have to think through something like this from a financial planning perspective, like, what are the main areas of that of concern, or what are like what are some of the variables people to think about when when taking a loan against their portfolio?
2: Yeah. So, you know. I- these, these lines of credit have become really popular the last couple of years. And I think partially people are seeing what's going on with the ultra wealthy. And there was an article in The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal uh, maybe a year, 18 months ago, talking about, well, how do these people that have so much money pay zero tax, but they're still managing to pull money out of their portfolios? Um, S blocks are how? And the reason you might use one is if you're sitting on uh, some large appreciated portfolio, the idea is you take the line of credit at call it three percent and use the money for a down payment as opposed to selling out of the stocks that you own and getting yourself hit with a capital gains tax somewhere between you know 18 to could be as high as 30 percent with state and federal depending on where you live. Um, so that's ultimately why you might do it. Um, I, I think I think it can make a lot of sense in the right scenario. You just got to be very careful about how you use the leverage.
0: Is this, this seems to me like it would be a decent scenario for this. So you want to have a down payment on the house. You don't want to have to get out of your investments to do it. Mm -hmm. You're borrowing against your portfolio. You're paying probably a low interest rate. Does this kind of thing make sense? And like, does the reason for the loan, obviously, if you're, if you're, leveraging up to buy other stocks or some other risky asset. That might not make a whole lot of sense for a lot of people. But for a yeah. down payment where you have you know the house as collateral, it seems to make more sense, right?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely can. And again, it's, it's really you're looking at just the, the spread between the interest rate that you're paying um, and, and the returns on the assets that you potentially make as well as the taxes coming into play. So yeah, I think for a down payment for a house. Certainly, if you're sitting on a large uh, portfolio, it can make a lot of sense to leave those assets in the assets in the portfolio and let them continue to grow. Um, where you made a great point; it's got to it's got to make sense for what you're actually using the money for, right? If you're taking money out and putting on a um, you know an eight leg parlay on DraftKings, maybe not the best idea, uh, but certainly for a home purchase, um, it's it can be very useful. Again, using leverage in the right way. Uh, can be a good tool. The other thing I want to think about there is the way these loans work is like any other asset you're borrowing against, there's a loan to value ratio that the lender uh, wants to stay below. What's Um, what's like the ceiling there that you'd want to uh, borrow against? I I would say average is probably around 50%. Um, Depending on the lender, depending on the assets, I've seen some as high as 70%, right? So if you have a million dollar portfolio, most places. They'll say, we will give you half a million dollars at 3% um, or whatever the interest rate is going to be. Uh, the danger then becomes, and what the lender's trying to prevent and protect against, is that the value of your securities fall, forcing effectively a margin call. And right. what they'll do is they'll either liquidate positions uh, without needing to ask you to pay themselves back to keep that value um, the same. Or they'll say, hey, you need to put 10 grand, 20 grand, 30 grand, into the portfolio to keep that uh, that ratio correct. By so way, with that,
0: yeah, go ahead. Parker in the comments says that Kelvin Ridley did not appreciate the parlay
2: comment. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a good point. <clears throat> um, yeah, he's that's that was a rough trade for him. Um, out however many millions of dollars he is for a year's salary. Um, but the last thing I wanted to the last point I wanted to make on this is with a with that loan to value, um, if you. Set something like this up last year, and your collateral securities that we're using were Facebook and um, you know the ARC complex or tech heavy names. Wait, anything um, that gotten crushed. Those are down 30, 40, 50, 60%. Um, if you're in a broad-based, globally diversified equity portfolio, you're probably down eight or nine percent year to date. Um, so make sure what you are going to put up as collateral. Is not going to be something that could potentially draw down 50% in short order. Right.
0: Okay, Dunkel, the next one.
2: Okay,
1: so uh, up next we have here's a challenge question for you. This is fun. We all like a challenge, right? So uh, I'm 53, and as of January 2022, I had a net worth of $600,000, which was composed of cash, IRA, stocks, and home value minus mortgage. No debt. After the sale of my company, I now find myself with $2 million in cash. Uh, a year ago, I would have gone Warren Buffett and put 90% in S&P and 10% in bonds. I love to work, but I have the goal of retiring by 60 with at least $5 million in net worth. What in God's name should I do with $2 million in this new economy full of uncertainty?
0: Great question. And obviously, the, the the value here doesn't matter as much as like the thought process of investing in windfall when things seem scary and uncertain. And my one rule of thumb for this is like obviously, you have to take into account what's going on in the world. And where the stock market is and interest rates and all these things, but it's, it's far down the list in terms of setting up a financial investment plan, right? Like, when it's, it's not the first variable. It might not even be in the top five in terms of what's going on in the macro right now and how should this impact what I do with my portfolio. So, Kevin, you have a client come to you and they say, listen, here's a certain time horizon. So, this person says, you know, in seven years, I want to go from A to B. They, they're telling you, I want to retire at 60. I want to have this much money. How do you handle a situation like that where they give you like the the, the outcomes that they want to get, and then they say, "Okay, create a portfolio for me or a financial plan that gets me there."
2: Right. Yeah, and I love this question because it allows us to touch on a lot of different concepts in in financial planning. Um, you know, ultimately, this is just a math problem, right? This is just a this is just a question of uh, assumed rates of returns and what you have and what you're going to contribute to it. Um, if if you took the simple math and, and let's say uh, let's say that this this person again wants to get to five million dollars in seven years, currently has about two point six million dollars in net worth. Um, if they're a regular W two worker contributing, you know, the max to their four hundred one k, they're going to need around a nine percent annualized rate of return uh, to get to five million dollars. Um, that's obviously the tricky part in that we don't know for sure what those right. rates of return are gonna be. So ultimately, um, you know, you end up with a situation that you have something that is true on a piece of paper in your plan or on a spreadsheet, uh, but the real world obviously comes into play here. So that's where the variables can be can be tough to figure out.
0: Right, and, and I guess if you have that end goal, you can use it to set expectations, right? Like, here's what you need, here's how this could, here's like your range of outcomes. And then as you get closer and you build a financial plan, you kind of say, all right, we're getting a little closer. Here's what the actual returns are gonna be. Here's what you wanted. And, and sometimes, I guess the, the good thing is you can tell someone, listen, your expectations are so far out of whack with reality in the current situation that you're never gonna get there. And so you can use that as, as a conversation starter. Maybe you're gonna to have to put more money in, or maybe you're gonna to have to work longer, or maybe you're just not gonna have as much at retirement as you think. So you can use those all as, as sort of signposts along the way to help them understand their goals. Um, but I like the idea of, of managing a financial plan and we have this target. And then I guess the other thing is is that, right, uh, I'm sure you have this conversation a lot. Like when you turn 60 and retire, that doesn't mean your financial plan is done. And then it, that's like when the, the hard work begins, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one other point on kind of the math side of this is that 9% rate of return. Um, if, if this guy is saying that, you know, he's really uncomfortable right now, 13% off the all time highs. Um, if he had put this money in a year ago, if he can't stick with that 90-10, um, that might not be the portfolio for him. Um, right. And so that's where the behavioral coaching comes in that I think we can help a lot of people with is, yes, you might need 9%, but if if the volatility that we're experiencing now is making you really uncomfortable um, and it's going to cause you to do something silly like panic sell or, uh, or something like that, then we need to kind of marry the, the rational, right? Which is, okay, you need a 9% rate of return with the reasonable, which is what portfolio and plan can we develop for you that you'll stick with? Because ultimately that's going to be what the biggest driver of success is. And to your point, if we've got, we don't have seven years to make this work. We've got seven years until potentially he's going to start drawing the money. Then we've got another 30 years that this money needs to keep up with things like inflation and spending and, and, uh, and things like that.
0: Yeah, And I always like to remind people, too, that this is by far one of the craziest, like, macro environments I've ever seen, uh, especially just with all the really cross currents going on. But, like, you're never 100% certain about what's going to go on. Like, uncertainty is always at an all-time high, I guess. It hits a new high every single day. So it's it's really hard to know. So um, th- that was a great question. So so thanks thanks for coming on, Kevin. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This, this is a really crazy macro environment. I see we've got a bunch of questions here. Uh, uh, on the side, a lot of people asking about inflation hedges and can housing help there? Uh, so keep those comments and questions coming. We're always looking for more. Remember, ask the compound show at gmail.com. On
1: that note, too, I wanted to mention if we pull your question from the chat uh, and you see it on a future show, just email us and we'll send you a sticker. Uh, obviously, we can't like track you down just from a, a comment, though. So if you want to What's a sticker. the sticker
0: look like, Duncan? Did I even get one of these yet? Uh, I think you got one. It's the compound a, sticker? It's this one back here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not even selling those, right? We're just no, giving away. No, the only
1: way you get it is from having a question selected.
0: Yeah. It's exclusive. That might be an inflation hedge. Turn it into an NFT, Duncan. It's true. <laughs> All right. Remember, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Thanks to Duncan and Kevin for joining me. And we will see you next time.
1: See ya.
2: This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com
1: to get started with us today.